Today on Rewrite Radio, we listen back to a conversation I had with Jen Hatmaker at the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing. We talk about the truths that humor conveys, the need for good friends, and the problems facing evangelicals. We also consider the narratives available to women, especially women in the church, as well as the cost and necessity of being willing to change one's mind. I'm Jennifer Holberg, and along with Jane's Wart, I co-direct the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Jen Hatmaker is an author, speaker, and podcaster who has written New York Times bestsellers like For the Love of Mess and Moxie and Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. She hosts the For the Love podcast, which has won a bunch of awards and continues to speak all over the country. She also created the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, where she nerds out each month with thousands of women who believe good books are everything and stories still matter. She was a delight to interview. And now, from the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing, my conversation with Jen Hatmaker. Here, this this is Rewrite Radio, a a podcast from This is Rewrite Radio. (laughs) This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. So I just wanted to start off, you you are rarely asked about your own writing, and your writing as a craft and as a calling. Um, So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer, how you see this as part of of your larger calling, yeah. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for being here. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so happy to see you. I was telling Jennifer earlier, I'm like, who's going to come to this? Nobody's going to be there. There's, who wants to hear me talk about who knows what? Um, but you came, and that's really, really nice. Thanks. Um, so it's funny. I didn't set out to be a career writer. I would love to know how many of you in here, in one way or another, you're a writer. Okay. I thought it would be a lot of you. Um, I, I grew up loving words. I grew up loving books. That was always really, really important to me. But I was a teacher. Um, so I taught, I taught fourth grade right out of the gate, right out of college. And, um, and then I just had like a million babies. And I had them all in a row because nobody told me not to. And so when they were one, three, and five, which is just just an absurd time to be alive. Um, when they were one, three, and five, I was doing ministry just the way anybody does it, like in your own church, right? And my husband was a student pastor and a college pastor and then an adult pastor, and so I was doing women's ministry and just whatever. Um, and I realized that I wanted to write. I think I started writing because I had something to say. It wasn't because I ever imagined in my wildest dreams I could be a career writer. Um, That actually never occurred to me. Um, So I wrote a book that nobody asked me to write. And I I wrote it so green. I mean, you would have been so sad as an English (laughs) professor. Like, so, like, not well researched. And I did everything out of order. I didn't know how publishing worked. I had no idea. Um, And so I finished this whole book. And I was like, well, I wonder what I would ever do with this. And um, so I had a a dear friend say, why don't we take it to a writer's conference? Um, Which I didn't know what that was and didn't realize what you had to write a book proposal. How many of you have written a book proposal? It was no joke. It is literally no joke. And so 
Um, we went to, I don't know if you know what this is, but we went to the Glorietta Christian mm-hmm. Writers Conference. Yeah. And I brought my little book and my little proposal. I was 29. And um, I, I, I pitched it. I practiced pitching it to the mirror for a solid month. And, um, and lo and behold, it, it garnered some interest. And so I had several offers to, to publish that book. And that's how writing started for me. And so they kind of sort of come back and say, We'd like, we, we would like to give you like a five book contract. And I, I remember thinking, did somebody tell you that I could do that? Like, is there any reason you think I can pull that off? Um, I don't know anything else. I've already said everything I know. Um, and so uh, that was in 2004. And, and lucky me, it turned into a life. And um, so now I've written, I don't know, 11 or 12. 12. Thank you mm-hmm. for knowing that. Mm-hmm. I honestly... Stalking. <laughs> whatever. Um, and I love it. It's my life's joy. When, when you ran down a list of things that I do, and I do a lot of things, and I love them all to varying degrees, but if you forced me, if I had to pick one thing um, to the exclusion of everything else that I do, I would choose writing. It's my very, very favorite thing. I love it, except when I hate it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, except so, when I so don't love it. I did read a whole long list of things. You did. So how is it that you, what are the, your sort of disciplines? Meaning like, yeah, how do you get it how done? Do I write a, how do you get it yeah. done? Yeah, when you've got five children and you've got ministry and you've got podcasting yeah. and all that. So oh you're still, and you're very prolific in 14 years, right? Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about yeah. what, how could we learn a little discipline from you? Well, it's probably some combination of um, deep, deeply profound procrastination, panic, uh, wasting a lot of time, melodrama. Mm-hmm. Um, These are your cycles of... Yeah. And just sheer terror. Mm-hmm. Somehow that gets me over the finish line for every book deadline I've ever had. Um, but... If I, if I had to be a little bit more specific, although the word of that is true, um, I'm a morning writer. I've always wanted to be one of these interesting, moody, nighttime writers, you know, who just get in their head and it's two in the morning. But I, uh, I wake up in the morning kind of crystal clear. Um, and I dream, I dream writing. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you dream about words? Mm-hmm. I dream paragraphs. I dream ideas. Um, I keep note cards by my bed. And so I wake up with the remnants of ideas, and half of it's garbage, of course. Um, but, so I like to start, I like to put my foot on the gas right out of the gate, which means I come with my ideas, I open it up, I'm gonna spend at least 25 minutes on social media, a, a minimum, <laughs> right? Writing is so hard. It's such a hard time. Like, I think I would've been a great writer back in the day when I just had a typewriter. Uh-huh. That, that was the, those were the days. Um, I have too many distractions, but, um, but basically, if I don't have it written by one or two o'clock in the afternoon, it's, that's it. That is the end of the road. And it's a good thing, because I do have five kids. It's so many. They all live with us. And so they start coming home, and they are not interested in my career at all. Um, so that's about the end of the day for me. I'm a mm-hmm. morning writer. When do you write? Yeah, I'm sadly the nighttime person. You're night. I mm-hmm. always wanted to be that. Yeah, no, I feel like that you don't. I feel fuel a lot of material for me just to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But instead, I like all I have at night, the only brain capacity left is for Netflix. That's literally all I have. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but I have no children, so we that might be part of it. Yeah. I want to think a little bit, I mean, what I think is interesting about your writing, too, is uh, you, you have such, you've cultivated such a wonderful, funny, conversational voice. Um, and as someone who teaches writing myself, that's very, very hard to pull off. Funny is hard because any, funny is right on that edge of, like, not funny. You're right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Oh. Dorky, right? So, yeah, sticky, whatever. Um, and so, I, and I think it's the, it's the reason I'm always sad when comedies don't win the Oscar, right? Because no one is actually recognizing just how hard it is to do that. We can all be angsty, but can you talk a little bit about, well, maybe, but can, can, can you talk a little bit about kind of cultivating that humorous voice or why joy is so central to your writing I love and celebration? Um, I've always been drawn to humor, um, I come from funny people. My mom is here with me, and um, I know this is my mom right here. Applause for mom. Yeah. Um, we had a funny house, and so humor was like a second language for me. And I've always been, even so far as say, I would call a student of it. Um, we grew up very much in the SNL culture. And uh, I learned some of my writing styles from, from satire writers and from humorists. Um, and so it is hard. And let me tell you, when you say it's on the edge of being not funny, please do not read anything in my first five books. Please do not read one sentence. <laughs> I swear, I just want to Too burn late. the world down <laughs> and somehow eliminate it from all those. Um, that was when I was trying too hard with humor. Um, and just like forcing it into submission, and it was it was not natural. It was just not developed. Mm-hmm. I was younger, and I didn't have a lot of practice. I wasn't a career writer, um, and so uh, I, I think I have I found my voice the longer that I've written. And so there is some truth to um, just what everybody says, which is you become a better writer by writing more. And I wish that wasn't true. I wish we could just start out brilliant. Um, but I pretty much hate all my early writing. And I, I'm sorry that it still exists on shelves. But um, the more I wrote, the more I found it, and the more I read. Mm-hmm. And so to me, there's something humor can do for a reader that almost nothing else can. Um, and I don't fall into the camp that finds it unimportant. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think humor is dumb. It is actually hard to write. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to be funny in a way that um, that isn't contrived. Um, and so I, I find humor can find its way into the cracks a little bit better than um, almost anything else. So I write a lot of serious things too. I write on a lot of serious topics. Um, and somehow, I don't know how, I don't, nobody gave me permission to do this and I don't think it's against, I think it's against the rules. Um, but I weave humor in with all of it. I mean, even the really, really heavy stuff, even the really, really hard spaces. Um, and it lays a little bit of pavement, I think, for traction. Um, I think when a reader is drawn in by, uh, by good humor writing, by comedy, you can make them laugh, you can make them think. Um, and so I'll never leave that behind, even though I'll tell you early on in my career, um, really, honestly, not so, even so long ago, I felt like humor was um, just on the edge of being a liability for me. Uh, in, my, in my field, 
what is generally acknowledged is um, intelligence and academia and sobriety and you know, having this deep sense of meaning and purpose, and I believe in all of that. Um, and so I just could not tamp down the funny. Like, I wanted to, but it just comes out. And I thought, ah, I hope people can find a way to take me seriously despite this. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I have come down, I mean, I'm 43, it's kind of in the middle of life, but I'm not at the beginning of my career anymore. And so now I think, no, that's just part of it. And I love it, and I'm not sorry. Mm-hmm. And, and I, don't, I don't want to eliminate that, and I never want to leave that behind. Um, and so that's just what you're going to get with me. And, but I love reading humor. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times as a writer, I think, what do I like to read? You know, who, who moves me? What kind of teachers can capture my imagination and my attention, frankly? Um, and humor well, is one of the things that does. And I love, we were talking about this in a kind of our conversations leading up to this, you know, in so many of your books you make recommendations or you're saying, you know, I was really shaped by this book now and this book now and at the end of the chapter, here's more books and your website. Can you talk a little bit about some of these specifically books that you really feel have been important to you? We were on the phone earlier this week talking about this interview a little bit and Jennifer, was, she said, I'm going to ask you this question and I'm going to tell you in advance because... <laughs> When I tend to ask a writer this question in front of a lot of people, it's deer in the headlights. Like, and I told her, literally, when she said that to me on the phone, I said, I, I literally cannot think of a single book. I think I've never read a book in my life when you ask me that question. Um, interestingly, I was shaped early on um, most by humorists. Um, so I know that's not the right answer. Listen, that is I thought totally... long and hard about giving okay. you better answers than this. No, I give did. me the real answer. I'm like, I'm on a Christian campus for crying out loud. I need to pull out like Spurgeon. Yeah. Um, but We're reformed. Uh, <laughs> every square inch. <laughs> that's so true. John Calvin Bobblehead there you go. in the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it was, it was humor writers that made me think I might have a shot at this. It was, it was in their reflection that I thought, that's my personality. Like, that is the way I like to communicate. That is what I, I'd love to read. And so, um, and they were outside of Christian writing. Mm-hmm. David Sedaris had a huge impact on me um, as a writer and still does. And I've read all of his books a dozen times a piece. And he's just so gifted. He's so gifted at humor and, and observational comedy. And um, I like some of the more modern female um, humorists and writers like Tina Fey and like Amy Piller and that, that sort of improv group of women who I find incredibly gifted at writing and at humor. I know this is strange because it's not in my generation, but I've always been deeply impacted by Irma Bombay. Yes. Um, I was just so going to ask you about her. When yeah. people compare me to her sometimes, it is so flattering. I, I just cannot think of anything that is more flattering. And um, so that sort of whimsical... Um, that, that whimsical touch that is not just goofy, but it's got some heart to it, mm-hmm. and it's often an on-ramp to something more meaningful. Um, uh, those sorts of writers have mattered a lot to me. I'm also really moved a lot by memoirists. That's another genre that I love. I just find it, uh, because I don't write fiction, oh, I wish I did. I love, how many of you write fiction? Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. I wish I could write fiction. Fiction is my favorite thing to read. 
but that's not my skill set. So I'm drawn in to a lot of memoirists who can take, a, take their own personal story and make it beautiful. I think one of my favorite memoirists right now uh, kind of in our time is Kelly Corrigan. I don't know if you've read her, but she's just a masterful, masterful writer um, with words and with meaning. And so, um, it, ironically, most of my writing heroes are not within necessarily this sort of evangelical faith space. Um, now, those are some of my teachers, but they're not my writing heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so somehow I've tried to meld the two. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one thing that is interesting and that you've been saying already is, it sounds to me like we need some new stories, yeah. right? Your, your, your own sense that being joyful is not equivalent to being serious or not being smart, or even all the ways that um, we say people are just a mom, oh. right? The justa. Um, or all of those ways that being angsty is somehow more of being a real writer than someone right. who's joyful. And, and in, you know, and one of the reasons I, I relate to your work is in, in as far back as my dissertation, I started looking for women who were trying to balance being creative with being in relationships and not necessarily just rejecting things yeah. or whatever, but actually finding ways to, you know, that, that phrase of Eugene Peterson to have that, that long journey, you know, the faithfulness in the same direction. And that seems to be a lot of what you're chronicling. So I wonder if you can think about ways in which people can move out of feeling ashamed of being joyful or whatever, or what kind of new stories do you think, do you think we need? That is a great question. Um, I, I can tell you when I got this wrong, um, I, can, I can pinpoint pretty clearly in my early career, both as a writer and as a speaker. Um, I didn't ever set out to be a speaker, by the way, you guys. Just that was something people assume you can do when you write. So I, I just got tricked into that. Um, <laughs> but when I either read old work that I've written or I listen, God forbid, to old talks I've given. I can tell immediately who I was emulating. (laughs) It's so terrible, it's so shame-based. I can just tell like, this was a heavy influence on me at the time, or this was how I thought I was supposed to sound. Um, This is what I thought Christian women wrote about. Um, I, or I thought I had to be really, really clever and adept at all topics. Um, and so I tackled a lot of things I had no knowledge of, no passion for. Um, and so thus, a lot of my early work is just void of any sense of authenticity or voice or honestly power. It's just, um, they're just words on a page. And so I think uh, as you talk about new stories and leaning in, I, I hope this doesn't sound trite to say it, but I think the very best thing a writer has to offer her readers or his readers is to, as best you can, be the truest version of yourself. It's, it really comes across. Um, even if, I, I, I promise you, 12 books later, I still feel fraudulent and I have imposter syndrome all the time. Let me tell you, why do you think my mom is here with me? I was so nervous to come to this (laughs) because I knew I would be surrounded by writers who write differently than me, who are taken more seriously than me, 
who have a different tone than I have, um, who take a different path than me. And so I'm just telling you that doesn't necessarily go away. I was like, mom, please cancel your plans. I asked her Monday, like, please come with me, mom. Um, because there is this sense that you have to tell the same stories that other people are telling, or you have to tell it in the same way. Um, you have to say it with the same words. Um, in, the, in the same tone to the same people. And I, I just don't find that true at all. In fact, it's, it tends to be the really unique people who are absolutely operating out of their core identity that reach me the most. Mm -hmm. The ones that I can tell, well, that is definitely your story. That is definitely your voice. Um, that is definitely your opinion. Uh, and, and so those are the ones that I tend, I'm drawn to them because I feel like they're telling me the truth. And I don't feel like they're pandering to me or trying to impress me or, um, or just trying to succeed by emulating some template that seems to be working for somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's what I would tell you too is as writers, whatever you bring to the page that is so uniquely and wonderfully yours, I honestly think that's your best offering. Mm. And, and I think that one of the things you really model is a owning it. So I love that you have recipes. I like, like food. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to tell you, I was I was at a writers conference once, and I was following two men in to see a speaker, and they said, "Well, I'm not sure if I can respect someone with a cookbook." Oh right. And I was sort of like, "Really? Hmm. I hope you get a dinner tonight." Um, <laughs> But just that dismissal of anything in the domestic That's right. space, That's right. anything that wasn't sort of seen as, you know, oh, fra fra fra, yeah, yeah. Um, like whatever that. the technical term is I like for that. that. Yeah, I, I understood that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. But I also, like, I was noticing in uh, one of the sentences that stuck out to me in Mess and Moxie, you said, this one is for church girls, party girls, good girls, and wild girls. I am all for. Right. And I love that because that resists sort of one narrative. It does. You can be all of those things. Mm -hmm. And what's the story that's big enough for that? Because it seems to me that churches really ask us to shrink down, yes. right? Our testimony is either I was, you know, the terrible criminal and now I save puppies, or... <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Or I was the super Christian, right. right? And there's really nothing that sort of allows me to be a church girl, a party girl, That's a good right. girl, a bad, right? And can, can you talk a little bit about how you think about that and how, how maybe we can break up some of those paradigms? Uh, the church has not historically been good with nuance. Um, is that an understatement? <laughs> is that fair? Can we high five? <laughs> can we high five? Um, I, I would even go as far to say specifically with women, but also with men. Um, because I am colleagues and friends with so many men who do not fit the stereotypical church prototype either. Um, and so I, I don't think it's simply gendered, but certainly anything that colors outside the lines of a once upon a time agreed upon standard, um, it, it, it can be, that can be challenging. It really can. And I think um, uh, it's interesting to be writers and storytellers and leaders and teachers because... Um, we have the capacity to move the needle forward on that. We really do, um, by the people that we invite in, by the other voices that we amplify, um, by the colleagues that we partner with and collaborate with, um, by the teachers and writers we cite, right? And, and that we, um, we, we use as a resource. 
and uh, that we're willing to say, no, I, I can learn from that. I can learn from that because uh, I think the dominating narrative right now is that it's all bad or all good, right? So if we disagree in one thing, then number one, you're out. And number two, I can learn nothing from you. And I think that's a terrible way to live our lives. Um, frankly, it's impossible. If, if that is our standard, we will never learn another damn thing in our lives. Can we say damn? We can. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, slipped out. Um, when I first came to Calvin, I was, I'm not a Calvin grad, okay. and I heard some language, and I was like, whoa, Christian college? And, and okay. one of my older colleagues told me, earthy piety. Oh, I go. like this. I like this so much. Um, in fact, when we came into this chapel, I was like, is this where mandatory chapel is? And Jennifer was like, we don't have mandatory chapel at Calvin. And I was like, listen, I went to a Baptist college. You better believe we had mandatory chapel. <laughs> like, I was on chapel probation for three semesters. So <laughs> it was hard to go. Um, forgot the question. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yes. So I think um, I, uh, one way that I have found because um, I bother a lot of people, okay? I just do. I, I, don't, I don't fit the tidy narrative in a lot of spaces, and it messes people up. And so I, I have found that in my own little personal mutiny, my own little private resistance, one of the very best ways to combat this idea that you just have to kind of be one thing, um, or you can only run around with one type of people, that your group has to be homogenous, is that I'm just gonna go ahead and be who I am in all the facets that I am, um, which is sometimes talking about Black Lives Matter and sometimes it's talking about fettuccine, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna be a nuanced person who is faithful. And I'm just gonna let it stand. That's mm -hmm. it. I don't need to, it's not my job to convince anybody or to prove myself um, in any way at all but I will just be a faithful gin hat maker in all the ways that I've been created and let it speak. Yeah, amen. So that brings me to sort of what I wanted to talk about next, which was, you know, when, when, uh, when I look at a book like Interrupted, yeah. uh, which I know you've said is one of your favorites, right? Um, I mean, this book, if you haven't read it, do you wanna say a little bit about what, what it's about? Just in short, it, it, this would be a, if I had to, put a marker in all my books of when it was sort of before and after, this is the marker. Um, so this was when I think God really, in a sincere way, arrested my hearts and my husband's hearts for his work, for his church, for his world, for his people. Um, in short, we kind of left fancy, shiny, cool mega church and went to like hippie, weirdo, granola church. Is that, does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Yeah, and so one of the things that sort of also resonates with me about you, despite our lack of other lifestyle similarities, is, you know, you say, and I think it's for the love, and I'm going to get this right this time, I was exactly the church youth group girl you think I was. And that, and that to me is like, yep, I get that. You do. Yep, Amy Grant, welcome to the 80s and 90s. Oh mm-hmm. But... It's interesting because this book really chronicles part of that journey away from that kind of very stereotypical way that a lot of us who are around in this generation, um, that journey we've started to take where the things that were 
received wisdom in our youth started over these last couple of decades to not be. And so I think you're a really important person in sort of helping us, sort of showing us what your journey was like. So I love in here, I'm gonna just read this one little paragraph. You said, uh, I managed to attend church three times a week as a fetus, fulfill the pastor's kid role, observe every form and function of church, get swallowed whole by Christian subculture, graduate from a Baptist college, wed a pastor, serve in full-time ministry for 12 years, become a Christian speaker and author, and misunderstand the whole point. I just think, yeah. yeah. And then you go on towards the end of the book to say, this is the worldview I grew up with. My toxic evangelistic strategy was one, prove, two, defend, and three, put someone to the question. If she couldn't follow the logical steps, uh, one through eight, as outlined in my helpful Christian track, then her heart was hardened. I could only hope Jesus didn't come back before she came to her senses. I spent most of my time figuring out how to be separate, but what with my arrogance and judgment, I'm not, I'm not sure that was a tall order. I feared culture and the people in it, certainly that my proximity to them would pave the road to perdition. Sadly, I took what my spiritual teachers said as hard facts, parroting their interpretations to the detriment of anyone who dared disagree. I didn't become a critical thinker until my late 20s. My understanding of discipleship was linear. There was an obvious path to maturity through progressive steps, not a journey of discovery that involved several factors at once. Ultimately, my faith was about me and my stuff, and the greater good of my community was simply not my problem. And this book, I think, is quite radical. I mean, I, I study Dante and you know Francis, and this book is sort of, hello, Marxism, sort of. Um, <laughs> And yet, right? I mean, this is all about social justice and giving away your shoes and having a barefoot church. And so talk a little bit about that. And then I got a next question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's so cringy. Because I have a sort of two-part question. So cringy to hear you describe it in front of all these people. And, um, but that's true. I, um, that's, that was sort of part, um, my church upbringing, part the sort of going worldview at the time, part my personality, um, and and I I have a lot of regret when I think about those years of my life. A lot of regret for how many people I left in my wake of certainty and dogma, and um, and I it, it pains me to think of it. Uh, and so, you know, I think there was just a, a, God, a God's grace to me um, as I got older and, and a lot of my worldview was shattered. And sometimes that just happens with exposure. You know, I mean, I, let me tell you, I knew it at 22, okay? I miss those days, right? When I just knew everything, I had a very short and serious answer for it all. It could not be challenged. Um, and so getting older and having that shaken to its core, um, has been such a, a grace to me, but um, I, I don't see the world the same way anymore. I don't see a lot of things the same way anymore. I think a lot of my theology has been challenged, um, a lot of my ideas about God, about um, people, about salvation, about eternity. A lot of things have been challenged in my life, and I, I think that's good. That doesn't scare me. I'm not, I'm not the type anymore to fear discussion, um, to fear uh, new ideas. 
um, the, those have stretched me and, and improved my faith greatly. But I do think that if the version of faith that we're holding is primarily centered on um, on defending what it is we have, I think we're getting it wrong. I don't think that, do you know what I mean? I, I, I don't think that Jesus needs us to defend him. I think he needs us to represent him. And those two things are fundamentally different. Yeah. Um, and so rather than fearing the world like I used to, I used to be so afraid of the world. Um, just that, I, frankly, because I was afraid of God. Uh, I was very, very afraid of God. I found him punitive and arbitrary and terrifying and disappointed. That was my understanding of who he was. Um, and so it made me fear the world and the people in it just to hasten, you know, my own demise. Um, but now I think God has grafted a love in my heart for people, for the people that he loves and for this world and ultimately for me, uh, which has changed my faith. But Interrupted is the story of that transformation. It was very, very painful. A um, lot of spiritual upheaval that cost us a lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't go back for. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade a single day of it. Right. And the things you advocate in that book and the next one, seven, which is really thinking about what our possessions, how our possessions control us, how our kind of time commitments control us, and how might we might, you know get control of those and, and think about having them under the lordship of Christ for a better term. It's, it's a very challenging book and it's, it's very critical in many ways of capitalism and you still got to stay in life, life way after it though. Isn't that interesting? She went there. I did. Yeah, you did. Well, it's interesting, right? What gets us in trouble in the Christian world these days, right? So it's economic critique of capitalism, meh, we'll still sell your book. Other stuff, not so much. You're right. Yeah? Do you want to? (laughs) Sure. We're among friends. Life, I actually published that book. Yeah. So I noticed that. That made me laugh. Um... So there are some things within evangelicalism that are very sacred um, and cannot be touched. They cannot be questioned. They cannot be evaluated. Um, They are an instant banishment from the tribe. Apparently, that's not one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Evidently, politics isn't either. Um, So I guess morality is up for grabs as well. Um, so I, it's been very mm-hmm. disillusioning mm-hmm. to see how many things um, remain on the table without critique in the last year from leaders who absolutely assured me growing up that one bobble could mean the end of it all. One, so I, I feel very um, betrayed by a lot of our evangelical leaders who are... Uh, stamping evil um, with, a, with a stamp of approval in exchange for power and position. It's very, very disillusioning. Um, I am digressing. No, you're right on question. Nope. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, if you have followed me at all, um, a year and a half ago almost, You know, my husband, Brandon, and I, and this was after years and years of study and inquiry and prayer and 
gosh, you know, 10,000 conversations. Um, you know, we came out in a very public way, as it turned out, and uh, in a sort of in full welcome and esteem and affirmation of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And so that is the deal breaker, if you would like to know. Um, that is the one that will get your books pulled um, in 24 hours. Uh, and so, again, um, that is a cost that for me is worth it. <laughs> and listen, I'm just an ally, you know? I'm just an ally. I think regularly after the, what, what the backlash that we received from that um, and it's how vicious and how uh, mean-spirited and how painful it was, I think often like, well, we're just, uh, we're just allies. Like how do our gay friends feel, right? This is their life. Um, they don't get to walk away from this conversation because they get tired of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I, have, I, have, I feel like I see with clearer eyes at least uh, what sort of the marriage of evangelicalism and commerce looks like. You know, I see where those rules lie, where the boundary markers are, who's got the power and why. Um, what money drives, and um, and so if if it's done anything good for me, which is it has in many many ways. One of it's that I hold a lot of this loosely now, a lot of my career. I I, I really sincerely do. I kind of hold, hold it with open hands. And if the next one is the one that topples it topples it all, well then okay. I like I, I, surely I'm good at something else. You know I must have other skills. Um, and so uh, I, I no longer feel like I'm white knuckling success. Um, like I maybe once did, because I, I had managed that. I was a little bit of an evangelical darling, you know? Um, you get to be that when you're kind of funny and kind of serious. Um, and so to be on the outside of a tribe that I once was deeply esteemed in was very painful. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard. And, and I would say we suffered, and we're still working on healing from that. Mm -hmm. And, and you sort of chronicled that in this very touching post you had up uh, on Good Friday, my saddest Good Friday in memory, um, when treasured things are dead. And you really call out, I think, in some pretty important ways, the Christian, what you called the Christian machine, and also what it's like to be tyrannized as a brand, yeah. right? The tyranny of the brand. And so you say here, I saw with clear eyes the systems and alliances and coded language and brand protection that poisoned the simple, beautiful body of Christ. I saw how it all works, not as an insider where I enjoyed protection and favor for two decades, but from the outside where I was no longer welcome. The burn of mob mentality scorched my heart into ashes and it is still struggling to function no matter how darling and funny I ever appear. The internet makes that, the internet makes that, that charade easy. And I think that that's really interesting as we, again, back to this kind of the, the capitalism, the marketing, the, and also the, the thing you sort of touched on a minute ago about sort of being brave. Right, and how so much of writing is about being brave and authentic. And you, you want to talk a little bit about more about that? Yeah. yeah. And you know what? And I, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to set myself up as some sort of courageous hero here, because mm -hmm. um, frankly, in my estimation, it's just doing the right thing. 
And so if that's what costs us, then that, that is what costs us. Um, but f it came to this point for me where I knew where my convictions landed. And after that moment, every minute of silence was nothing but self-protection. Hmm. I was afraid. And I was right to be afraid. Um, I was right. And I knew, because I'm not, I wasn't born yesterday. I knew what was coming my way. And I was afraid. But at some point, the, my silence cost me my integrity. And that cost was higher. And it was costing my neighbor. And that cost was higher. And so I had to decide, what do you cherish? You know, what do you cherish? Is, is, your, are your, is your faith and are your convictions real? Um, or are you just building a brand? Right? Because I could have really, really continued my brand. I could. It was on the uptick. Um, and, and I could have managed some sort of vague, middle way language for a little bit longer, at least. Um, and not, not put a stake in the, in the dirt. Um, but I, um, I couldn't look myself in the mirror anymore. And I couldn't stand by while my neighbors were suffering. I mean suffering. Not because they were going to lose a book contract, but because it was their life, their souls, their inclusion in the church, um, their well-being, their children. Um, that... That was, that was too burden. That burden was too great to bear. Mm -hmm. So I wrote yeah. this on Good Friday, not this last one, but the yeah. one before. And I'm so glad to tell you that in, this, in the time since, um, uh, God has done such a healing work in our family, in our lives, in our church. Um, I will also tell you that with, and by the way, I know that we're kind of all over the map on this one specific issue um, in this room, but I appreciate you listening kindly about it. This just happened to be a big piece of my story, although you, there are a lot of conversations that will get you in hot water too, mm -hmm. um, where they are challenging or polarizing or your, your, your uncle, you know, Larry doesn't agree with you and it's going to be hard around the table. So I think this translates to a lot of ideas, but for me, um, um, this was the one, but for us sort of with that, um, with that public acknowledgement, even just the inclusion of so many new, um, friends from the gay community in our lives has made it so expansive and so much better and I wouldn't trade it. And so, um, in some places, I guess you could say that my career or my space was diminished, but that's not the way I perceive it. That's not the way I feel it anymore. I feel like our life is enriched and it is strong and we're telling the truth. And there is just, there is no, you cannot put a price tag on telling the truth. Um, I mean, golly, at least I could sleep at night. Um, and so I am so much better than when I wrote those words, but they're still hard to hear. Yeah. They're still hard to hear, and that season will always be very dark for me. Mm -hmm. Very dark and full of grief and full of sorrow and full of some losses we'll never get back. Um, but a year and a half on the other side of it, I will tell you that um, 
We're not, we're writers and readers in here, but that's just what, that's just a career path. If we're believers, that's what's eternal. And so it is our, it's the strength of our convictions. And it is to the degree that we are a good and a genuine neighbor, I think that really matters, that really lasts, that is really and truly our legacy, not just whatever commercial success we manage to amass. Yeah. And acknowledging that part of your story, though, really does help us go back to that earlier thing about you giving us, again, a more complicated, right? It yeah. isn't this just easy path to glory or whatever. We can shift gears now. Uh, you know, you do a lot of work with, when, and some, a lot of your early stuff was written specifically for women. Um, talk to me a little bit about women's ministry. So when I talk to people about in my church, you know, there's some people who want to go, some people don't, some people think, right, it's it's all crafting or whatever, you know, they're terrible stereotypes, right? So, and and so I think that there's a, there's not often as much solidarity among women in church. Sometimes people feel like, oh, well, I'm not a mom, so I can't go, or or that's not for me, or, you know, and it feels like there's much more um, divisiveness among us than maybe there should be. Um, Are there ways that, as someone who's worked a lot in that or speak at a lot of women's conferences, what's your kind of vision for the next decade for for women in the church, do you think? I like that. Um, it's hard to paint this one with the same brush. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different slivers to this pie chart mm-hmm. on what women's ministry looks like. I would say, in my estimation, and I spend the great majority of my time serving women, um, I would say I'm at the 90% mark probably on women, although I love having a co-ed room. I do, and I, I love when I get to speak at conferences like this or leadership um, conferences too. I, I think it's so good to have men and women in the room together. But um, my... My assessment of women's ministry is that it is as strong as it has ever been. Hmm. Now, it could be, and I will readily admit, that I have surrounded myself myself with similar thinkers um, who honor women's gifts and respect their authority and invite them into um, the church leadership and into the pulpits. And so I'll admit that I have a very um, egalitarian life, um, which means I'm surrounded by men who respect me and um, who honor what it is I do and invite and they share the microphone. Um, However, even, even that aside, I see women serving one another in a really robust, smart way. Um, I, I think the, the sort of stereotypical mm-hmm. days of like Christmas teas or like whatever, mm-hmm. um, I, I think those are, I think that's yesteryear. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they don't happen anymore, but women are so smart and they take their faith so incredibly seriously. You only have to look at the church to know that. Women are keeping the churches all afloat. You know what I mean? I mean, God forbid the church that loses its women. Um, and so uh, I think that what I see are women coming to the table asking good and hard and nuanced questions that maybe haven't been allowed previously or that men don't ask or don't allow. Something about the heart of a woman um, makes us often able to handle the soft tissue a little bit better than just the bones of the thing. Um, 
And so I feel really, really hopeful. I mean, I will tell you that in my world as a Christian leader, as a speaker, as a teacher, as a writer, um, this sort of dialogue and response and discussions that I get to participate on, on the regular, are fascinating and deep and good and strong and true and smart. And so I think we can probably abandon the sort of, I honestly think the stereotype of women's ministry being for dum-dums, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a straw man. Yeah. Uh, not that it doesn't exist somewhere. I'm sure it does. Um, but uh, I think we're a part of crafting the next iteration mm-hmm. of what it means to be women in leadership, what it means to be um, women in literature, what it means to be women in the pulpit. And it's very, very exciting to me. Like I just have so many friends and colleagues to look to. It's, there's no shortage of, of really strong voices coming from women right now. And so um, I, really, I wanna really appreciate the men too who are willing to listen and learn um, from their female counterparts and, and invite and pull up their seat to the table. I, I see that. I see that, and I, I thank you for that, and I think you're setting a really good example for my daughters and your daughters and the next wave coming up, because I don't think they're going to stand for sexism. Like, I don't think they're going to have misogyny. You know what I mean? They're just, I don't know, my kids are, like, not having it. Um, so you might as well go ahead and invite us to the table, because the next generation is going to kick the door down, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You had Easter under a bridge. Right. Tell us about that. Tell us about what, what's happening right now in your church. Yeah. Tell us why you're hanging out under bridges and things yeah. like that. You literally did. I, they act, they, they yeah. think they're yeah, making it up, but no, you did I not. Did. Um, so Interrupted, the book you referenced, um, ultimately ends with my husband and I starting a church. So that was 10 years ago. And we started a church in Austin called Austin New Church, and it is very precious. And whatever... Uh, I know for sure that a lot of you are in here and church is such a source of pain to you um, or loss or struggle or um, just an unwelcomed space. But it, I understand that. I brought a lot of church baggage um, to, that, to that table. But, so we just kind of started the church that we wanted. You know, we just started the church that we dreamed of. And it's small. I've only ever been in big church. I didn't know what else there was and it's small and it's simple and it's it's very very precious this easter was our 10th anniversary and it's still just as dear to me it's just as dear and um, the people are ever more precious and the work that we do together is so special and so way back when we started we started on easter and we decided not to have a service we decided to serve our community and we've done it every easter since and of course not just on easter but on easter um, we, we, instead of having church in our sanctuary, we gather under a, a overpass, a highway overpass right in the heart of downtown. And we have this sort of Easter extravaganza and it's with our church and it's with the homeless community. And so we, we set up tables and tablecloths and, and, and we have families or groups of friends that host each table. And so um, our sort of friends out of the homeless community come and sit down and we play cards and we play games and, um, and we serve them food and our band plays, we take communion together. It is absolute chaos. I mean, it is a messy, hot mess. Um, 
but we also, we give every single person a brand new pair of shoes and backpack full of supplies. And we have a mobile pet um, group that comes in and serves all their pets. Because um, it is just beautiful. I mean, it's just a dirty, beautiful mess. And it just felt like, golly, that's our high holy day, right? Like, that's the day that we say split history in two. That's the day that saved the world. And it just never felt right to just spend $500 on Easter clothes and shoes so everybody can tell my kids how pretty they look in the church lobby. Like, that's where, eggs? Like, I just didn't get it. Like, what? I don't get it. It doesn't match. It doesn't match. And so um, that's how we have celebrated Easter every single year. And it is um, one of my favorite days of the year. And we're very deeply committed to our homeless population in Austin anyway. But um, so, yeah, we were under a bridge. And we were just dirty. And it was loud. And it was a mess. And we loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Well, and again, it's a new way to do church, right? So sure. all of these ways we think it shoulda, it shoulda, it shoulda. Yeah. Well, turns out it could be all kinds of different ways, yeah, right? And um, I loved also how you talk about it as a cross-denominational church. I, we don't know what we are. Yeah. I just made that up. That's made up, okay? You can borrow that if you want it. But um, we, we got our lift off the ground with the partnership of several denominations, which felt unusual, mm-hmm. um, that they would um, have a little skin in the game where they weren't going to get the credit. And, um, and so now we're affiliated with the UMC, who has been, they've been such a good home for us and mm-hmm. such a nice wide tent mm-hmm. and so many women in leadership for so very long, for decades and decades and decades. And, um, and they've just faithfully served for, for so long. So yeah, yeah, that's our little ANC church. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I mean, my minister loves to end every service by saying we live in a world where a resurrection happens. What does that mean, though? What if we actually believe that? Yeah, How would that change the way we act? How would that change the way we, we think that. about? Uh, I mean, if it actually really happened, whoa. And if there's enough love, we were talking before about, if we really understood how much God loved us, yeah. what would, what would, how would that change? That's a beautiful way to, that's a beautiful benediction um, for your church. I learned a lot of this. One of my best friends is Sarah Bessie, and she kind of comes out of word and faith. And so she regularly practices the language of resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how she grew up. And um, she always tells me, she's like, my parents told me my whole life, you are the head and not the tail. And she will go off on her sort of charismatic <laughs> rant. I'm like, I never even heard these words before. Like, well, should I be saying these? Um, but she talks a lot about resurrection and it has deeply challenged my notion of what that means. And I think resurrection is possible every day, and I think it's possible for every person. And right now I feel, I I refuse to give in to cynicism and despair. I still believe resurrection is possible in our systems. I do. I think it's, it's possible in systems that have been spoiled and tainted and ruined by racism and homophobia and misogyny. I think nothing's too far gone. Nothing. And, and I look at the work of resurrection in our life, and so often it's just nothing but a bunch of ordinary people putting their hand to the work um, out of, for love of God, for love of people, um, just in honor of their faith, in honor of their gospel, um, to say this, this thing, this, this piece of death does not match the good news that I believe in. Therefore, I will work to bridge the gap. And I don't know if it's any harder than that, really. Now, it's complicated 
But I think that is what it is, is that what, when we see death reigning in our cities, in our neighborhoods, um, in our own bodies, in our families, in our lives, um, that it is, it's our joy and it's our hope. It's actually our hope to believe in resurrection for that space, that new life is always possible, that literally nothing is too dead for resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. That if God can, if God can pull Jesus, a three-day-old dead body out of a grave, then really not even death has the last word mm -hmm. on anything. So I'm one of those annoying optimists that believes the best. I got this from my dad. I cannot help it. I believe the best in people. I believe that hope is possible. I think there's goodness to be had. And I think even the most timid people can dig deep and find courage for that work um, and that God will sustain it. And so I do believe in resurrection. I do. I've, I've seen it too many times at this point. In my life, if I am unwilling to acknowledge how often I have seen God bring fresh new life um, to a dead heart, to a dead marriage, um, to a dead family, to a dead system or space, um, then I would just be willfully obtuse. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've watched God reign so many times that I can't help but be hopeful. And so it is frustrating, I know. My cynical friends are always like, stop believing the best in people. People are the worst. I'm like, no, they could be good. Um, so I love that, and I love that benediction. We say yeah. something similar at our, yeah. at our church. My final question. I think one reason that um, so many people like your writing is that you write so winsomely about your friends. Right? I think everyone, as I was telling people I got to interview, the, everyone would say, I would love to be her friend. Right? I see heads nodding in the audience, right? Um, and I think so often people are yearning for good, especially women, yearn for really, and men too though, yearn for really good friendships. And I think when you have one, you're so grateful for it. Um, but I wonder if you want to say just one, maybe we have, I think, two minutes, just, just a little bit in celebration of female friendship and the ways in which you've, you've done such a beautiful job chronicling it and celebrating it and, and lifting up your friends and, and all of their joys and foibles and everything, yeah. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that my friends are my life. And I cannot even, I cannot even get a, a clear picture of my life without them. I learned this from my mom and my dad. My mom and my dad had deep soul friends my whole life. Um, their fr friends whose their kids were practically like cousins because that's how much we spent time together. And so I didn't know there was another way. I didn't know that we were supposed to hold ourselves back from fully investing in our relationships. I didn't know that we were supposed to be like weird and not vulnerable. Like I didn't know that um, we were supposed to withhold time and attention and energy from other people because my parents never did. So I grew up in this very robust friend environment where they did life together. I mean, in every possible way. And so I just followed suit because that was my parents were my teachers. Uh, so my friends are, I have the same friends I've had forever. So that, let me tell you how unimpressed they are with Jen Hatmaker, zero. They're zero, zero impressed, okay? Um, they've been longtime friends, they're old friends, we have seen each other through everything. And, and so I, I think I understand that friendship is a scary topic for a lot of people, especially when you've been burned, I get that too. Um, that's happened to me too, it's not all roses here, but um, I find that it is exactly the opposite, that it is the vulnerability, it is the, 
hands open. It is the sharing of life um, that actually deepens those relationships and makes them so precious, more precious and more valuable than anything. And so um, I love to celebrate my friends because they're so good to me. It feels like an embarrassment of riches. It really does. And we are bad. We're so bad. We're so naughty. We're so crazy. <laughs> We're so wild. Um, and I wouldn't change a thing. And so, I mean, if I had to pick, if you made me pick between this pretty, like, fun, awesome career I have and my community of women and friends, I would pick them. Um, and I guess I'd move in with them. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> would they pay my bills? I'm not sure how that works. The metaphor's breaking down. you have to test down. that out. But, um... <laughs> Anyway, they're so dear. So I just do want to encourage you, if you're lonely, that um, it, the risk is worth it, the, of, of being, even just with one person, uh, such, a, such a joy in my life. Well, tomorrow, Jen will be giving a plenary talk in the afternoon. After that will be her book signing, so she won't be doing a book signing today, but I'm really mindful of the words of the poet William Blake, who says, exuberance is beauty. And we're just so thankful for you as a beautiful soul and for the time you spent with us this afternoon. Thanks for being our friend. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Kelvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find more information about the center, our initiatives, and our signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.kelvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CCFWGR. You can also subscribe to our Rewrite Radio on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more from our archives. Archives.